Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Alien vs. Predator Galaxy podcast, the original Alien and Predator podcast. This is Aaron Percival, a.k.a. Corporal Hicks, and joining me, as always, is my fellow squad mate, Adam Zeller, a.k.a. Ridgetop. And we have a nice special great interview for you for this episode. Who are we talking to, Adam? We are talking to the primary writer of Aliens Dark Descent, the video game that was recently released a couple months back at this point, right? July? Mm-hmm. So the the lead writer and the narrative designer, two roles he occupied for the game, and he's uh, Thibaut Claudel. So this is, of course, when we're recording this, is the we've already spoke to him, I've already edited it, we're just doing the in and outs, uh, ready for the final episode, and uh, it was very much a enjoyable recording, wasn't it? You really yeah. enjoyed this, didn't you? Yeah, the story for the game was really interesting, so it was great to talk to the writer. I was wrong, by the way, it was came out in June. Man, I need to play that game again. I feel like I've, I've been replaying it. I started playing it through again on hard. Yeah. Should we let it play? Should we let everybody listen to Tebow instead of us? Yep. Let's do it. Enjoy. So first, welcome to the podcast, Tebow. It's a pleasure to have you join us and nerd out about Alien Dark Descent. But before we dig into the nitty gritty of uh, Lethe, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Who is uh, Tebow Claudel and uh, what do you do? I ask myself the same question every day, I guess. <laughs> a bit of existential dread just to start it <laughs> off. Yeah, yeah. And before we start, I gotta say that my answer do not represent views or opinions of Tindalos. Focus Entertainment or 20th Century Fox. And I guess now the snipers from the Way Lounge Jitani are leaving, so I can speak freely. What does Thibaut Claudel do? Who he is? I ask myself this question. First and foremost, I think I am a kid from French countryside, so I apologize for the bad English and the accent. And that kid developed like a massive interest, you know, in uh, everything uh, pop culture, uh, whether that be video games, comics, and of course, movies. So I became uh, a journalist specialized in those topics uh, until I joined the video game industry first as a content editor and then I started to dip my toes into uh, the world of narrative design because I always had this passion for writing and creating stuff. And so that's how basically I became a writer slash narrative designer depending on the projects. And that's how I got to work on uh, Aliens Dark Descent. What about all the favorites outside of Aliens? Oh, uh, as you can see behind me, maybe <laughs> I'm a I'm a massive like uh, Star Wars fan. W- were you asking franchises or like stuff or just the, mo- the alien movies? I'm I'm sorry. No, just just in general. What what's what's your other jam? Oh yeah, Star Wars was massive on me and still is. I'm a huge uh, Warhammer forty thousand nerd, so you may know a bit of, about that as well, Aaron, as being the resident Brit from <laughs> from the podcast. <laughs> Not really, maybe. I never let myself get into Warhammer because... Wise men. <laughs> I, I, I want a little bit of money left in yeah. my life. <laughs> I got into I got into AVP's answer to it. You know, I brought into Prodos's miniatures. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're cool. I never got to go do, um, you know, like any organized play or competitive play events, unfortunately. But I'm glad we got them. I, You know, because Warhammer is so obviously inspired by Alien and Predator in a lot yeah, of ways yeah. anyway. To actually have our own version was great. But sorry, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my fault. Uh, so, yeah, I'm in a huge uh, comic reader as well. Like Batman, when I was younger, was like pretty my hero, you know. 
So I read a lot of comics uh, back in the day um, and, you know, a lot of things that we have here in France as well, like uh, everything we say, uh, like Bande dessinée and uh, every heroes we have from uh, our local comic shops. And um, yeah, I was basically like always surrounded by that because my father was also a huge fan of th that sort of movies. And uh, he was not into video games because I guess they were not that much of a thing back then. But he introduced me to most of the stuff that I end up loving. And Tindalos has done some Warhammer games as well. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to get ahead of your questions, but uh, yeah, they actually made two Battlefield Gothic games. So it's like a spaceship battles, like spin-off, I'd say, uh, from 40,000. And uh, it's actually why I wanted to meet them, you know, <laughs> at first. And we'll talk about that later. Yeah, I'll we'll get to that. For later. But yeah, yeah, we, they, they are a massive fan of, of both, both the franchise, you know, and it's actually funny because as Aaron mentioned, like they are so much, uh, like 40,000, so much inspired by Bad uh, Alien specifically. So it all comes full circle. And for me as well, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for joining. And uh, since you've listened to a few of them, you know we have this tradition where when we have a new guest on the show, it's mandatory that we ask them about the first time they experienced the franchise we're talking about. So for you, do you remember the first time you came across the alien? Yeah, I remember it actually. And also, thank you very much for inviting me. I remember it because uh, I wasn't that young. I actually grew up with a very loving but very strict parents in terms of what we could play and see at home. So I actually discovered uh, like the alien movies when I was in my first year of studying, you know, like out of the family home. And I was aware, I guess, to an extent of the creature, like uh, the actual xenomorph, you know, like because I guess you cannot really escape its shape and uh, how much it is referenced throughout popular culture. So I know what it was, but I didn't, you know, actually see it until I was like 19 or something like that. So I just remember like a friend from school basically said, you know, let's watch a classic, let's watch Alien. And I was like, oh yeah, that massive classic I know everything about. Basically discovered the first movie like that. And then asked, you know, oh, you have like the steel book with the four movies. Can, can I just borrow it for a second? And he said, oh yeah, well, you, you, you can watch them all you want. You know, he knew them, I think, by heart way better than I used to. And so I actually managed to steal that thing for a few days. And I was actually studying in a boarding school. So there was not really much to do except working, you know, working on essays and whatever, and also watching movies at night when officially it was curfew, but we were using helmets and whatever, trying to watch movies with a lot of people around. So that's when I discovered Aliens LM3 and um, Resurrection. And actually, I have a funny anecdote about that because I was studying in the same place uh, Jean-Pierre Genet uh, studied. I mean, I, it was his high school at the time. Which is kind of yeah, that, funny. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> How little the word can be sometimes. So was he like a bit of a obviously because he'd gone on to have a lot of success anyway? You know, was was he one of those ones that people talked about as being you know the famous yeah, alumni at the school? Like a legend. Like I guess more like we had like uh, courses on you know cinema history and everything. So I think uh, the first it was one of the first thing that the teacher she mentioned that, and I was like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. That's the guy who did the. Movie I don't know a thing about. <laughs> Not that movie. I, I knew he is other's movies, but this one I discovered pretty late. But it was like everything I kind of mentioned happened like in a in a week or so. Like not even, you know, I was watching, I think I watched two and then 
and maybe three back to back. And I think I rewatched the second one right after that. I was like super impressed with that. And especially since, you know, like Alien, Alien, sorry, has inspired so many things in video games. Like you have a lot of that in, in that movie, like the first person shooter type of characters and the, the movie lines that are very, you know, like badass soldiers and you know even apon i guess uh appears in in halo johnson mm-hmm. yeah yeah so i didn't know about that you know I, I i had experience i had play halo because it was piggy 16 or something and my parents were like you're 16 you can play this now so they were very much following you know the book and i had escaped their side to watch horror movies or or violent stuff but i never m- managed to find because i guess we were living in such a small city and as like uh, I had a very limited circle of friends. I never came across the, the actual movies until I was uh, an adult, basically. But the beauty thing about the, the beautiful thing about that, sorry, is that I knew when I discovered them, I knew already like quite a lot about, you know, how to make movies. And I guess I, I appreciate them like uh, first and foremost as a, you know, as an adult, like someone who had like a massive interest on how to make movies, how difficult they are, how do you make those decisions and everything. Alien specifically always impressed me the most because it felt like it was impossible to do something better than the first one when I first saw it. And like the day after that, I saw the second one. I was like, what is all that? You know, and I guess people had to experience that. I mean, waited years to experience that. And I, I just waited 24 hours. And every every movie, you know, even Prometheus and Covenant, where a lot of people and there is a lot of discussion about that still. But I think it had like something special for me to dig in because I was already so much into movies and not it was not a fan reaction or a, a, I say that in a positive way, but like a childish reaction to when Sin Star was behind me or, you know, the stuff that I t- discovered when I was a kid. It really was different and it stayed with me. And every time I watch Aliens, I'm still blown away by how, I don't know, like intricate and detailed that movie is. So you sort of took it more from a critical, knowledgeable point of view. Yeah. And it stuck with you because of that. Yeah, yeah. Because some sometimes, you know, like, uh, I guess I wasn't as much as a cinephile as I am nowadays, but I, I was still, right. you know, interested in that. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, in the making. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's cool. I mean, that's not that's not really a, a, an approach we hear from a lot of people, is it, Adam? Yeah. You know, for both of us, you know, it was it was the mega influencers kids. And that's the story that you tend to hear a lot. So mm-hmm. hearing you come at it from a, an adult point of view, but also it still leads you into this position as the writer of what people are really, really fucking loving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, as an entry into the law, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear you come at it from that other side. Mm-hmm. And speaking of um, entries into law, the Alien franchise has a huge backlog of games. And, you know, much like you were saying, or much like we, we know the films go in that they're different genres and different feels and stuff like that, the, the games are the same. As evidenced, of course, by Dark Descent, it's wholly unlike all but one, and that's only surface level of the other games. So, you know, some have been fantastic, some have been not so fantastic. Did you have much experience with the other Alien games prior to working on Dark Descent? Did you explore that corner of the fandom after watching the films? Yeah, I guess it's a bit ironic. I played Alien games before I saw the movie. Sorry, I apologize for that. I think that was us too. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay, okay, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. I didn't. I didn't know. I think my first one was um, 
Aliens versus Predator 2. And that was 2000, the 2001 game. So the PC game. And I didn't play it at my home because my parents were like, so, you know, like always looking on my shoulder. Uh, but they actually, you know, they had friends of their own. And one day they'll say, oh, we, we will spend the weekend, our friends. And I was like, oh, okay. And you're coming. I was like, oh, okay. And they actually had a, a son that was um, a few years older than, than me. And at some point, you know, after like the dinner or something, he's like, do you want to stick out and play video games? And I'm like, yeah, cool, sure, whatever. And so he had like the like a massive PC that was probably like the family PC or whatever. And he said, oh, I have this thing. And that was Alien versus Predator 2. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And uh, it's it's funny because I have like very vivid memories of playing as the Predator and trying to hunt everybody else. And that was fun. And I think I also played the revamp, uh, I don't know, like another uh, versus from Rebellion, I think in 2010. So that was like mm-hmm. later. I had a friend. I remember being super interested in Colonial Marines when he was first announced and until the re- the reviews came out and I thought like, because I was young and obviously like uh, I didn't have that much money to invest into the game if I wasn't sure it was absolutely worth it, you know. So I was like, yeah, okay. I was kind of diverted from that game because of the reviews, but um, I still played it like a few years later. And of course I played Isolation like everybody else. I don't know. Although I never beat it. I did a second run uh, when I started working on Dark Descent. And I say that I didn't complete it because, you know, I, I didn't want it to be influenced. The The reality is it's, it scares the shit out of me. <laughs> so I just like, I wasn't able to finish that game. It's just like, you know, you, you beat certain steps and you remember like, oh, that was so hard in my previous experience. And now it's fine. And then you, you find that the game keeps on, you know, being scarier and scarier. So mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't never manage to to finish that game to my shame because it's an absolute powerhouse of a game, you know, it's just so good. It's a very hard game, but it's also a game that I think works on such a visceral physical yeah. level as well. You know, I to this day still remember the adrenaline come down I was on after playing that game for the first time. You know, that hit me on such a physical level. Yeah. Brilliant game. Definitely. What about your experience with the wider Aliens Expanded Universe? I mean, there's a lot of elements in the game that come from all over the EU. Had you read any of the older comics and novels, or was it the more recent reconciliation of all the old lore that was in the Free League RPG? Were you looking at that at all? Or Yeah, that, that's that's a mix of all that. I would say that during my youth and like teenage years, I have read a few comics. I don't remember what it was to be honest with you. The only thing I remember was, I think, the crossover between Predator and Batman. So I wasn't alien, aliens, but I was like, this is cool. I should find more stuff like that. But again, you know, small towns and everything. So I never, you know, really scratched that hitch, which is a funny thing to say nowadays because it feels like it was the early 2000s, you know, and nowadays it's just so easy to come across something and say, oh, I'll, I'll devour the entire canon of whatever universe. Back in the day, it wasn't doesn't feel that long ago, but it was impossible to do. So it, it's it's funny how you came across, you know, like I I remember like for instance the Clone Wars comics from Dark Horse, 
that was difficult for me to find like the next entry in the, that, the series. And so I guess I had, you know, pick up a few things at the bookshop or maybe, I don't know, flea market or something, but I wasn't aware of any actual series happening, you know, in real time. Like every month you have to pick up your book. I wasn't aware of that. That said, Romain, our game director, he is a massive fan of the Dark Horse comic books of that era, 90s, especially, I think, 2000 probably as well. So he's uh, slightly older than me. And so he introduced me to it when I joined and also novels like uh, Sea of Sorrow. So I didn't read what he had in digested for, for the game. That is true. Like I, I didn't want it to know every bit about it because I was afraid that we might you know fall into the trap of doing the same thing. But I discussed that with him quite a lot. And he basically introduced me to the different bits, what was cool about it and everything. And the RPG, it's it's funny because going back to my point about not being able to, you know, get your hands on everything you want on, on aliens and, and and all that. When I think the, the RPG came out, it, it became, I guess, this ultimate work, you know, on, on the alien canon. And I don't think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we had anything like that prior to, to, to the RPG. And I remember that it wasn't translated in French and I, I could read English, you know, but I was like, okay, let's, let's see what they did, you know. And I remember trying to find, you know, like uh, pictures from the book with the timelines and the, the lore about the union of progressive people, other companies, you know, stuff from the larger alien canon uh, and universe and i'm not a canon mogul but i remember that when i saw bits here and there on, on the internet i thought shit this is cool we have to do i mean someone has to do something with that you know i never thought that i will be part of such an adventure you know but i was really thinking there is so much more to do with that universe and i think it was kind of fading you know because of i, I think prometheus came out before right Prometheus was out before the RPG, yeah. Yeah, and then they had like, you know, franchise, they sometimes have that sort of brutal stop, like, oh no, we don't we don't do those anymore because uh, that movie or that book didn't do well. So at least that was my experience of it, but because not everything is translated here in France and I didn't know everything about it, but the RPG sat on my desk throughout the entire production. <laughs> so it's like definitely the one of the Bibles. We had that one and the uh, Alien Technical Manual, Aliens Technical Manual, I think it is. Colonial Marines Technical Manual. Exactly that. A, a gem of a book, mm -hmm. I think, because written in the perspective of, I guess, the, the 80s. Uh, and that's, that's just so interesting how different it is from the RPG. And I think you mix those two and you have basically what we really wanted to do with that, with that game. So of course it had a massive influence on us and uh, on what I wanted to, the stories we wanted to tell. And also on not the story level, you know, usually narrative design is used as, you know, if you write the background stuff, the data pads and everything. So I'd say the narrative design was also about trying to use bits from the from that RPG and make them relevant to our game. So it definitely played a massive role in, in, in the production. It's one of the things I liked the most about Dark Descent was just reading all of the notes people would leave around these environments and it would make it feel very lived in. You know, the game is kind of like a mesh of different genres and 
I personally kind of describe it as like a survival horror real-time strategy game. And that's something you see in survival horror a lot too, right? And like Resident Evil games, you'll see the notes left around, you'll read those and see what's been going on. So I thought that was all handled really well in, in this game. Thank you. But speaking of the RPG, one thing in particular that, that caught our attention was that ship, the Nostromo-inspired M-class bison ship, the Marlowe. Yeah. The codex entry on that mentions it was allegedly destroyed, as we all thought it was in the RPG scenario. The Montero, right? Montero. My bad. Marlowe's AVP. I, I got you. I got you. But yeah, so is the Montero, is that meant to be the same ship from the RPG and it was just misreported that it was destroyed or is this meant to be like more of a nod? <laughs> I have a confession to make uh, regarding the, the Montero because uh, actually when we started, I think the mission was called Bison class ship or something. And I asked about how the ship was called and they said, oh, it's the Montero. And I was like, okay. And so note that down, try to use the name where they had a script for the mission that wasn't penned by me, but anyway. And then I realized, looking at the RPG, because as I said, it was on my desk, that it was the same ship. And I thought, guys, we have a problem because like there is probably like some sort of mistake. Is that on purpose and everything? And no one could actually explain to me who named that ship. So either they were too shy to admit it. <laughs> And and to the viewers at home, I, I don't want to I don't want to feel unprofessional. You know that sort of stuff usually happen when you have like a, not hundreds, but I'd say dozens of people working on a game. Sometimes you know you try to sneak a Easter egg, you know, trying to be clever or whatever, or just you know to be a fan as as we all are. But then I was like, now I'm I'm worried because how how can we make that work? And so basically that's when the allegedly destroyed part came in. But the funny thing is that it tied in, I think, quite well with our stories, saying that it was a ship that was repurposed for the cult's needs, you know. And so I was like, ah, maybe that could work. You know, I tried to to do a few things like that in the game. This is not the only weird connection or name, you know, that reference other alien material. And when I actually, you know, located that and discussed it with Fox, we tried to, you know, have a little nugget, a data pad, something so that the fans will, you know, try to make connections. I have seen some crazy theories about that on the internet and, and i love it because you know i'm like this is pretty cool i think that's that should be our next story you know and sometimes you know they, they have great ideas but for the montero specifically it's just one of those funny anecdotes i will i guess tell for for a lifetime you know it was named like that and i realized it month after that that it was actually the same name from the from the rpg gotcha you, you can get away with that one, though, as well, because if you've ever heard Gasker talk about his mentality when it came to writing the RPG, he talked a lot about barroom canon. And it was this idea of these stories are being told over drinks in a barroom. I love that. And it's not necessarily correct, and there could be embellishments and blah, blah, blah. blah. So uh, perhaps the Montero did survive. Yeah, yeah. I also love that about Warhammer 40,000. And that's why I became such a fan. It's like they have this weird kind of loose, I mean, pun not intended, but loose canon, you know, like they they're, they're have this sort of stuff. I think they, they have this sentence like evidence of absence is not absence of evidence. And that sort of, you know, that sort of <laughs> stuff. So you, you can always imagine, you know, there is like a second story, second side of the story. And it's it's kind of I mean, from my point of view and, and, and the job that I do, that sort of stuff is so much 
richer and interesting uh, for for a game specifically because you have to engage with so many little parts, you know. And if we say this is the only truth about that game, we kind of sometimes break, you know, the immersion and the magic of you know discovering that world level after level. And I I was very much a fan of from from the get go when they when Tidalus introduced me to the project of of the world building they had created. Although sometimes the names were perhaps wrong, but I I thought like we have to you know be super careful about that about crafting a story that will and like a bigger story like I, I, like the sm- small details and uh, what was it it's like saloon talk barroom cannon barroom cannon thank you and yeah that, that sort of stuff i think i i am very much a, a fan of and so i didn't know that what i was writing but i was definitely what i was writing i mean the, the idea was to insert a lot of stuff here and there so people can actually dig in the story and realize like this is a, an actual colony with a with a story and uh sometimes the story will contradict other works but i can either confirm or deny <laughs> everything that happened yeah, that's, that's that's always fun, you know. That's part of the joy of working on such a massive IP, I guess. Now you've got to tell us about Tindalos, and now you've got to tell us about working on Dark Descent. How did you come to be involved? Basically, I mean, I needed a job. <laughs> as simple as that. At the time, I was working with uh, Enroad, which is a smaller studio on another adaptation. Sorry. Uh, we're adapting uh, a manga, like an anime called Aggrandizer that is massively like popular here in France. And so basically we had done like pre-production and started uh, a ver- what we call a ver- vertical slice. So it's like, a, you know, like a demo, like we're, we will send to the editor and everything. And at this point, the publisher, sorry, uh, wrong word, that's a French word. Anyway, and so I was very pleased with that, but uh, we didn't know if it will move forward. So because I was freelancing at the time, they said to me that maybe you should look for something else in the meantime. Nothing will be wrong about that. You can go ahead. So I started to send a few resumes and one of them uh, was at Tindalos. I think probably one of the first studios I, I wrote to. And so it was because I'm a massive uh, Warhammer nerd and uh, I had loved their Battlefleet Gothic games. And I assumed they were working on the third one or something like that, you know. They answered like a few weeks or months later saying that uh, they had no position available, but they had loved the profile. And I think that was fine because in the meantime, I had signed a contract with the other studio. So I was like, okay, cool. Maybe, you know, one day. And they actually came back to me a month after that. So that must be like October 2021, they answer. And in November 2021, they come back to me saying, now we have a position. And I'm like, oh, shit, <laughs> because, I, you know, I signed a contract with, that, with the other company and I love them both. So um, how can I choose, you know, between my, uh, my darling, so to speak? And fortunately, because I was working part time with uh, Enroad, I was able to arrange my, uh, my schedule thanks to them and work on both projects when I started. So I started, I think I signed on the day of my 30th birthday, which was quite, you know, a gift. And I know it, I knew at this time that it was aliens because I signed the NDA and blah, blah, blah. And basically started like 1st of December and until I guess I did my last work on the project maybe earlier this year, 2023. So that was quite the adventure, you know, working on, on both projects at the same time. And especially since Dark Descent was way ahead of us. On the, on the second project. And so they had like a lot of things that were actually, you know, quite urgent. And so those days were intense. 
but very fun. And it was a pleasure to work with them. I hope we'll continue to do that. It was such a warm welcome when I arrived. You know, it's it's sometimes difficult to arrive uh, into a production that is already so much, uh, you know, advanced. Like they already have so many things and still there is a lot to do. And you kind of come up and you say well, we need to change that, you know? <laughs> and so maybe, they, maybe you know, it's, it's, it, it puts you in a difficult, tricky position. But I think they were always nice to me and super, you know, like open to discussion, trying new things and trying to improve the project for the good of telling a great alien story as well as making a great alien game. Because I think the Romain, the game director, especially NCC is the game director, you know, he's at the top of the project. So he can uh, infuse us with that passion, you know, for, for that story and for that word. And he really wanted that game to have like a proper narrative side. And so I was super fortunate to be invited and frankly quite honored to be invited to work on such a project with the experience that I had. At what point did you know it was aliens then? Did you accept the job working with Tindalos before you even knew it was aliens you'd be working on? Yeah, no, I mean, I think we had a first talk. Uh, so when I sent the resume, you know, out of the blue, I knew nothing about the project. I assumed they were working on a third Battlefield Gothic game or Warhammer stuff because they were so passionate, you know, in the interviews and everything. I thought these guys will never let go of that franchise. <laughs> so I have a shot at working at Warhammer stuff and I speak too much about Warhammer anyway. And so when they contacted me back, not saying we love your resume, but we have a position. So a few months after that, they were saying, you know, vague stuff. And so basically vague stuff is difficult because you're like, okay, I'm interested, but I would like to you know, would you like to know more <laughs> and sort of stuff moment, you know? And so I was actually anxious to, to hear about it. It's the first thing that came through my mind when they started describing the project was actually Marines, you know, like Marines from aliens. And then they announced it was aliens. And I was like, yeah, obviously, <laughs> but, but you know, I was, I wasn't a hundred percent sure, of course. And so I knew nothing on the project. They described it as like kind of XCOM, but in real time with RPG elements and like a proper story. And, and I was kind of intrigued by what I heard. And I thought, wow, if it is exactly like they say it is, it must be something quite you know ambitious. And, and it was. So I'm glad I, I, I got to work on, on such an ambitious project. So you served as the writer and narrative designer for Dark Descent, yeah? Yeah, one of them. <laughs> one of them, okay. So yeah. can you explain to our audience then what's the difference there? What's the delineation? Yeah. What did you do on one and what did you do on the other? It's it's a very thin line, I'd say. And I guess it's, uh, I mean, you could explain it because the positions, the, both of those positions are not super well described. It's relatively new in the in the video games industry. So they usually, you know, Sometimes it's obviously, you know, a bit blurred. And so one can do the other. Big companies usually uh, will have writers and narrative designers doing very separate things. And the image that I uh, give is usually that you will have like the canvas that would be the narrative designer. And actually, you know, the painting, painting the stuff is the writer. So I don't know, like studios, like for instance, like Telltale Games, uh, narrative designer, they will 
outline the different bits in a, in an episode saying we should include that sort of moral choices. We should have an action scene at whatever point, you know, and then a writer will come with ideas to fill those different bricks, you know, like it's a sort of narrative uh, Lego set, you know, to build together. Usually on smaller studios or projects, you do both. So it's very rare nowadays, uh, I guess, to have full writers on small projects, except when they come from other medias like movies or comic books, or maybe they just write. They don't think about how does that interact with gameplay because the very simple uh, definition would be a writer will write the lines, you know, not really thinking about that. And the narrative designer has to say, the lines need to be shorter. We have to be careful because we have a cutscene and then we have that much intensity in the gameplay. So we shouldn't send important information to the player when he's actually fighting uh, so many xenomorphs. That does happen in the game because of uh, the AI but, and because it, it's, it's quite a tricky game. But yeah, so basically, I don't know if that makes sense, if that helps you understand a bit better what uh, those two jobs are about. But long story short is uh, usually when you are working on a smaller project or with a smaller studio, well, you will probably have to do both, which is fine by me because I played so many video games. So I like to, you know, try to understand how does the gameplay interact with story. But also, I guess I'm a very creative person. I want to write the lines. I want to find the best jokes, the best whatever. And so I really like to actually paint that famous painting I was mentioning. I was one of the lucky few working on that project. So I guess they had another narrative designer. And of course, they had another writer. That was Matthew Ward, who already worked with Tim Dallas on uh, Battlefield Gothic and who was a real gentleman when I arrived. You know, he, he was leaving because he had books of his own to finish and basically couldn't, you know, work on, on the two at the same time. And so I remember, you know, like the first time we talked, he said, you know, you can destroy everything. You can change everything. I won't mind. <laughs> But he said, you have to break the curse. That game needs to have a writer from start to finish that he never had. I think we also had, I never met him, but Gauthier, who worked on the project. And of course, Romain, the game director, like wrote so many things about the game as well and had so many ideas. So it was like uh, definitely multiple brains involved. And uh, Matthew like just handed me the baton and said, you know, like run with it finish that quest for me. <laughs> and I did. It's always a weird thing because I guess you could compare that to script doctoring if you know like the, I guess you yeah. guys know. The coming, coming on for the polish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're, you're a bit like, uh, oh, we'll change this and change that. And that was my experience of it. I, I really wanted to to deliver something polished and you know like that's for sure but also i did try to invest and you know myself into the project and add stuff that was a hundred percent my jam or my ideas my obsessions i'd say and the mix i guess tend to have found its fans uh, you know like i heard good things on the on the story so i was quite pleased with that but yeah, I can also elaborate on, you know, everything that was mapped out or mm. if that interests you. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the next question, actually. When you came on and you took over those reins, how how mapped out was the game? You know, how different was it to what it ultimately became under your guiding hand? It wasn't that much different, I'd say. To my understanding, the first concept of the game, they date back to 2019, I think. So it's actually like an old project. So it wasn't developed back then, but it was uh, 
they, they had a clear prototype of what they wanted to do. When I arrived, so that's two years later, the game was pretty well into production. Most levels were there. The story structure and the bits were there. And Matthew, you know, had delivered like a structure that was actually, you know, sound and solid. So I was actually able to see the story from start to finish, not play it maybe, but I remember most levels were playable somewhat. It's, it's a funny thing because we had the story bits and for instance, like the mission 10, which I think is called Price of Deception, was block block of colors on Unreal. It wasn't totally finished, but you could have the different bits and you could actually play it. So most of it was there, you know, to put it simply, but we had a lot of feedback to take into account. So those feedbacks were, for instance, uh, Mako, the main character, unclear plans from the protagonist, uh, a lot of people in the studio and with the publishers and the reviews we have, you know, internally from, you know, external partners, whatever. They were quite confused about that. And there were skin scenes, sorry, that have that had been skipped ahead. So they were not sure about what to do. So they just said, okay, let's go with the next level. You know, we'll figure it out later, which is not unheard of, definitely not unheard of in video games because it's by nature so much more iterative. And, you know, we always question everything. We always have to go back to not grand zero, but sometimes that happens, you know, like uh, that gameplay feature that is so massive for your game might change at the last moment and you have to change so many things. You have like so many different mechanics and, and bits to take into account. And that's why it's usually, you know, I hear a lot about stories in video games not being good and everything is also because of that production and how it works. It's very different from movies. That said, they had characters, they had what they wanted to do, the antagonist. So basically, I didn't came with new characters, for instance. You know, I just used what I had. I changed a few of them in terms of maybe personality or that sort of stuff. But basically, my first month, they were talking with uh, Romain, discussing one bit at a time. And I remember, you know, I, I was arriving pretty early in the morning. He uh, working on what we had discussed yesterday. And then he joined me for lunch at the local restaurant we used to, to go like every day. And the same, we were discussing another thing or something that inspired both of us when we were young and trying, you know, to channel that. I was listening to your interview with, with the director of Prey and he was saying like he used different, you know, scenes from other movies to talk to actors about channel, that sort of stuff. And that is super interesting to me because I thought I was cheating trying to do that myself with the writing, you know, like, oh, we should have uh, that sort of moment or trying to watch stuff on YouTube in the middle of restaurant, referring to the project as the creature or we, we had a word like that. So we couldn't, you know, speak about we're making an alien game at the restaurant. So obviously we had to a little precautions to take, but that was fun. I mean, uh, that was probably like the best part of the job, you know, because there is so many things you can do at this point. You know, the first month we're like, wow, my brain was basically like overloaded with ideas. And then you have to come up with a plan. And as soon as we had the plan on how to rework the story and, it, and put the different bits, I think we changed the order of two levels as well. I don't remember, remember which one. That might be six and seven or something like that. But I mean, except for that, basically the plan was set. And then we moved to rewriting the interlude. So those were the cutscene, you know, between missions. 
the actual cutscenes in missions and then the mission themselves with the dialogue and the story beats and also the information for the player that were missing because that was another feedback, you know, that people were lost in the game because of how massive the maps were and how little you had. Like, basically, you don't have much help from the game. It's actually a very hard game and it's designed like that. It wasn't a flow, but we had to find ways to improve, make that design a bit more accessible, you know, or I guess more friendly to new players or people who wanted to enjoy the story because it's such a difficult thing to say, you know, like, oh, we have this massive story. You only have to beat 20 alien queens that are almost impossible to beat, you know. I'm glad we have a story mode. Basically, I, I played the game in story mode, so <laughs> I, I cannot beat that thing in a, in a, in a harder difficulty. It's just too much for, for my little brain. I am a, I'm not a... I'd say competitive. I, I don't know if that's the word, but you know, Romain actually can't do it. He's really good at his own game. I'm not. But yeah, that was pretty much how things were back then. And but it took a lot of months to you know to work on every mission, and we did it in chronological order. And I think when I started working on the interludes, Matt was finishing his draft basically of the last mission. So the the only month we had in common, he was working on the last mission and I started I was starting to make the plan for how to make a second draft. I speak in Hollywood terms, movie terms, but maybe you'll understand me better if I said it like that because Otherwise, it's not sexy. <laughs> it sounds like such an archaic, not archaic, chaotic way to work as a writer, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess every writing job is a bit chaotic. I mean, in, in my experience, limited experience. But it's all, it's very much the, the truth about video games because of the iteration process and the, the way production works and the non-linear type of storytelling. It's just like you need a lot of people. You need everybody on the same page. You have a lot of setbacks. You can, you know, have stuff added last minute or taken out of the game at the last minute. I don't think I hear... I meet with other narrative designers or writers and I never heard any one of them saying, oh, that was perfect from start to finish. You know? <laughs> First draft was great. You know, it was shot like that. It was actually the gameplay didn't affect in, in, in any way. So it's always like super tricky, but it's part of the fun and you have to be, I guess, if I can defend my team of writers uh, working in video games, is you have to be extra creative and able to receive a lot of feedback from very different people and sometimes people that are definitely not understanding the game you're making and you're like yeah okay point taken well i have to try to i guess classify every information and i guess learn what is the best feedback we can take from everything we just heard because sometimes it's just a novel load of people asking stuff like it's actually something i think i heard on the project is like we should put an helicopter and i was like what <laughs> an helicopter <laughs> well, we have the dropship surely that is fine you know and they were saying, oh, yeah, yeah, the dropship. Oh, yeah, it's true. We have that. You know, sometimes you have stuff like that and you're like, maybe you're confusing me with another, you know, studio or another people. <laughs> but uh, everybody, I mean, publisher's side as well, they have a lot of uh, stuff on their plate. So you have to, mm -hmm. to be able to speak the same language, if that makes sense. Speaking about a very prominent narrative element, one of the things we personally found satisfying about Dark Descent was the inclusion of the cult. While this is something we've seen in the past, it's not something we've typically seen very frequently. So can you tell us a bit about the decision to include them as the primary antagonist in the game? Yeah, sure. My understanding was that the cult was always there. And in fact, I have a few anecdotes for you 
I think I heard at least that their presence and the fact that we were a real-time strategy game saved the project from the merger. Because usually what happens is that when you know another company takes over, they kill a project from the old company. Yeah, but there was there was quite a few victims of it on the alien side. From yeah, yeah, and, and and predator. Yeah, yeah, I imagine so, and I I feel for them because working years and years on 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 big projects like that. I mean, I, I have described Dark Descent as a small project is because we are still like a very small studio and it's a very small game at you know the scale that we have now in in video games. But even that scale is just so damn painful to to hear about those games being cancelled basically. But Sometimes they resurface one way or the other. So I'm sure we'll learn great things about them, I hope, soon. But basically, I think the game wasn't actually signed during the merger. But usually, the, you know, like they shouldn't have come back to it. You know, they should, they, they should have said, like, okay, that, that was the thing from Fox. We don't want that. And I think actually the the work they started to do with, this, with, the, with 20th, they were so impressed with that cult thing. And quite excited by the perspective of having a RTS that they say, okay, we'll, we'll do it. We'll, we'll continue working on it. And I think it served two purposes, that cult. I think one, Romain, when he was uh, in his teenage years, he was blown away by the Dark Horse comic books I was mentioning. And so I think a panel in particular, he actually showed me that panel in his omnibus. Is it the one with Salvage with the alien, the holographic alien? I don't remember. I, sh- I should check out. But the, the one thing I remember was like a little detail drawn in the in a panel where I think a guy with his own blood wrote Darwin was right on, on the wall, if, if that rings a bell. And so he was actually, we, we have this saying in French. I mean, that's very much like kids talking, but we say matrixé, or like using the matrix as something that actually, you know, blow your mind. And he was actually matrixed if that makes sense in English, by this panel, because you keep <laughs> referencing it as the moment that really stuck with him and gave him this idea of a cult that was obsessed with evolution theories and or theory, more like it. And he kept that idea of his in, in his mind for years. I can relate to that as a writer. And so recently, actually, I think showed us the printed version of the game, like he made like a, an RPG version of the game, RPG slash war game version of the game uh, when he was a teenage year, a teenager, sorry. And uh, it's it's a very early prototype of Dark Descent, but I think there is certain bits in the story that was that are still there, which is quite funny. I don't remember how he called the planet back then. I think it was a colony with like, uh, you know, 666 at the end. It, it's not subtle. It's like a teenage <laughs> work for sure. But I loved it. I love every panel, like every shot he took from the book. That was beautiful. That that guy, I'm so impressed with that work. And I love him. Like he's, he's, he's a maniac with with that project. He actually kept him in, in, in the corner of his mind for so long. So I'm so glad to, to, to have helped him put it forward with the rest of the world. But going back to the cult, sorry. The cult was already there back then. And uh, it made sense, I think, in, with the genre, the RTS side of things, having enemies that could take cover, shoot, talk with you, maybe. It just clicked, I guess, with the, with the genre. And also, I think he really wanted to put forward that cult element because it was so, 
I guess present throughout the canon. I'm I'm not as like uh, knowledgeable as you guys are on, on that side, but from what I understand, is it was also in another form, but first script from Alien Three or another one maybe. So it, it was always there, you know, that idea of people being fascinated by the creature, and Roma was also fascinated by the idea of people being fascinated. So he really wanted to give them a face, if that makes sense. They don't really have a face. I mean, some of them don't because of the because of the mask. I mean, they have a very prominent chest. Yeah, 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 right. And I think also the design really helped sell th- that project because I saw the first concept art for the guys when I started. They already had, I think they were working on the final design, which is so damn cool. And the, the first design were intense. Like They were even weirder. Uh, but you couldn't see that and say, ah, not interesting. Derivative, you know, we already saw that. It was so striking, I think, that we had to do it. And so, yeah, I guess because of the dream of a teenage boy that is not me and the fact that he worked well with, with the genre, we had to use them. And I, and I was glad we, we used them because I, I just love that idea so much as well. When I read about that idea throughout the Alien canon, I thought, why on earth, you know, you, you know why on earth nobody made a movie about that yet you know so i was super excited to work on on them and i hope that answers your question adam but we can dive deeper if you want well i was curious too that so the name of the cult darwin era was that inspired by that panel you you had seen you found it back era yeah so maybe that wasn't blood that that was actually you know uh, that was me uh, saying weird stuff so that is from the early pages of book two nightmare asylum when they're watching the broadcasts from a very fucked up alien infested earth okay could be blood but yeah it's on a chalkboard yeah yeah so probably not but yeah i guess i have sinister's ideas and i retell my own stories the canon is broken but thank you for for showing the panel you know it's funny because he showed that to me like pretty early on in the project and i realize now uh, one year and a half later a bit more but I speak like an old person and you know, I, I have embellished the story. I guess that must be like a professional mistake or something. I will, I'm always trying to, uh, you know, force a habit, you know. But yeah, the name came from that panel and the name actually had that weird new age uh, type of cult sensibilities, you know, that, that sort of era of new faith, uh, if that makes sense, that we had in the 90s. He was very much like a... Not into that, but into the story of that. And I guess that's not that much different from what uh, Ridley Scott did because he was also inspired by the theory of ancient astronauts and everything. So it was all that cut from the same cloth. So we were actually trying to, I guess, mirror a bit of that as well. And yeah, it's sort of a, I mean, the name is actually quite weird now that I think about it, but it just sells the objective, their purpose, quite frankly, you know, it's just like, we're about evolution. So, okay, nice to meet you, Darren, era. And so basically they saved the game, apparently. So thank, thank you for that, guys. I agree with you in terms of how they not explored this more. You know, it was a very interesting part of the first series. You know, I loved the idea of the Church of the, um, what's it, the Immaculate Incubation, I think is what the original one's called. So uh, when it was showing up as a primary part of this i was like oh this is fucking interesting somebody's finally playing with it so yeah i thought that was yeah cool. i think we could have done more with them to be to be frank i hope i i will be able to revisit some of it 
um, maybe not win a, win a game, but maybe a tie-in or something, because I really think um, there is even more to tell about these guys. And, uh, uh-huh. you know, because of the creature and the, the importance of her, I keep referring as her or, or his, but anyway, yeah, the, the, the shape is actually so powerful and the different, you know, uh, xenomorph variants that we have nowadays it's just people expect that especially in the game as your bosses or mini bosses and everything and so i guess we wanted to also offer something something new something fresh and different but i guess you can never beat the original you know so at the moment you see the the actual xenomorphs maybe people start to feel like these guys with the weird chest are cool but not necessarily interesting on my side i really think i would have loved like if i could do like a movie version of the story i'd probably like put alien in i mean the the xenomorphs like in the back you know like uh, you almost never see them you see you see the chest burster maybe in their actual machines but you have guys that are obsessed maybe with one or two maybe they have a queen or something like that but you can't reveal it until the very end that would be so cool to have that sort of stuff like play has done for Predator, I guess. Like, you know, it's in the franchise, but no, you know, we'll keep it slightly a secret. You know, I think I, I take that a lot. I myself uh, respond to that massively. Maybe there's more to explore with those guys. Definitely. I think in general, there's a lot of implications from the lore that there's plenty to explore with this one. Uh, so you mentioned Mako Hayes earlier. Yep. With, what did you say? The, the direction of her was unclear early on. Yeah. She is really interesting and really fun in that she's entirely different from the sort of general portrayal you'll get of a Wayland yutani employee. You know, her well-meaningness is something that is very well contrasted with Price, especially in that 10th mission. Yes, that's the 10th. The 10th yeah. mission, you know, and that is an awesome fucking exchange between the two, you know, in that final cut scene. Thank you. Thank you for that exchange. Her journey in the you know in in the game and the cutscene as you lead into the final mission as well that panel of her and you know I I had literal goosebumps at that point I'm not gonna lie mm, thank you so much tell us about that journey then you know going from this not sure what direction we should take the protagonist in mm-hmm. to this very different version of a Wayland Yutani employee yeah okay cool uh, first I'm so glad to hear that because I guess it was the hardest part of my job on that project was Mako I'll elaborate on that I don't know if Adam you have anything to add if you loved her or not yeah no I thought she was a really interesting character and I'm right with Aaron in that very atypical for someone in the executive position of Wayland Yutani I guess I mean things I feel like the alien universe does try and have a bit of nuance with those things but Mm -hmm. it still can kind of revert to you know i just want to be in it for the corporation and the money and all that and i I guess we did see a bit of that with price and the contrast with her and and mako but i thought mako was a great protagonist and how she had this arc from being entrenched with the company and into by the end of the game fully embracing this new identity as a marine and i thought that was really well handled thank you so much for, for saying so you cannot really see it because my camera is probably bad, but I'm actually blushing. I'm so glad to hear that because we had like so many feedbacks to take into account on, on this uh, on this thing. And, you know, for, for writers listening, when you hear about, for instance, that a character is unlikable, it's crushing, you know, because you're like, what does that mean? Because some characters are supposed to be unlikable, first and foremost. And 
also sometimes it's just not an actionable feedback you know like what does it mean to be likable i don't understand and so we had that feedback we actually actually one of, one of the first thing I, I heard about that that character was that and so she was for sure a very difficult character to write unlikable for some for others it was uh the fact that you're playing her but not always you know different depending on the levels which is also a challenge and when i talk about uh, her with matthew when i actually came to came to the job and he i asked him to describe the different characters because i had obviously to to write them after him and to because they were to my understanding his creations he described her as an introvert and say he had zero problem writing her like that because he was an introvert as well problem is i'm not <laughs> so to me the fact that he wrote her like that made it extra difficult because i i think at first i tried to push i guess my vision and i really wanted to feel different i think my original pitch to roman our game director to revamp the character if that makes sense was to say like Ripley she is that character and she has like a blue color we need the same kind of character with a white color and she has to do stuff that people understand and respect although it doesn't feel like the right choice you know and discussing with that he reminded me that for instance in the first movie i think Ripley she doesn't want the infected guy to be in the ship and so we kept referring you know we 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 kept refer referencing that bit to everybody saying like why does she push that button you know at the beginning of the game and we're like well we want to see the game where that happens and that turn wrong and that's kickstart the story if that makes sense and so uh we had a lot of things uh like that to iron out i guess but to me the fact that she had flaws or that she had moral ambiguities was a good thing it was never about that but it was difficult to hold the line if that makes sense because you hear as i mentioned so many feedback people trying to push into a direction that is more familiar or more comfortable but, but they they don't understand that if you change that beginning the whole journey has to change and so i think she was interested as it is i was interested just like you guys did and i'm that's why i'm so glad to hear that that she is a bit different and kind of i won't say weird but she 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 doesn't really fit like a mold that we already see we have that in the game i'm not saying we made the most original thing we we have price we have malo we have probably archetypes that people who are familiar with that ip they they will know by heart almost but i think what she was really missing was some kind of quirkiness if that makes sense and also a proper journey for instance the scene that you mentioned uh, Aaron when i arrive my understanding was that it was supposed to be much quicker and she was Mako was supposed to end the scene shooting her like killing price in sorry spoiler alert uh, i mean it didn't happen so uh, you know you're safe for now basically she was supposed to 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 shoot her you know in cold blood and it didn't really make sense you know at least for me i mean it, it just wasn't the journey we had embark it was just like she's not on that train you know it's it's a totally different train we we are we changing direction and i remember having so many discussion about that and so the first some of the first i keep saying the first things but i guess there were plenty of those things so I, what i really wanted to do first and foremost was to move price to appear earlier in the game because i think when i joined she was appearing 
And she was not even mentioning mentioned, sorry, until I think mission eight or something like that, you know. And so I was I was a, a bit sad about that. And also, if you study a bit of how Hollywood does it, how movies, you know, you don't introduce like a, an antagonist twenty years, twenty years, twenty minutes before the movie ends. Like uh, it's 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 a weird thing to do. I mean, it can work and can surprise people, but. Basically, nobody cared about price, and so nobody cared about that uh, meeting and that exchange between the two. I tried to make her more uh, prominent, if that makes sense. And since we had that, it felt like she could have exchange. We could show Mako referring to her as a solution, potential solution, because you know not everybody is bad in the company, and blah blah blah. And so. Killing her in cold blood, that would have been, I guess, a mistake because she was, I mean, she's a Marine. She, she, at the end, as, as, as you mentioned, Adam, I think it was you, but it doesn't mean that you shoot everybody that does not agree with you. And it felt wrong for me that someone who, uh, was willing to actually, you know, take the blame or actually, you know, made her hands dirty to protect a whole planet. And now she was like, okay, my journey was that to be traumatized by the, the lives I've taken to protect others, like the, the greater good or whatever you call it. And now she was just killing people, you know, like it's a lot of Friday in Mako's life and she has a gun, so why not? So fortunately, Roma agreed, agreed, I think. He had something totally different in mind. So I guess he must have, you know, he had done his math and he knew it, it didn't really make sense. And so he described to me his idea as, you know, we should have like a more like a verbal, like a word joust. And uh, it's about who will have the moral high ground. And if you can add a little bit of Blade Runner, you know, on top of that, that would be great, Thibault. Just do that, you know, but, you know, no pressure. And I was like, okay, it's the most difficult thing I've ever been tasked with. I think you nailed that because... Thank you so much. Price has very much now become the decade, which we've got to ask you about as well, you know, your thoughts on that answer. Yeah, and so I wrote that thing. I think I worked so hard on that scene. I think when I... I started working, uh, writing that scene one day, taking the, the metro, the subway in Paris. And suddenly, you know, like I had the first sentence. And I usually, if you know, if you want to know everything, but I guess I usually start with dialogue, whatever I write. And so I usually don't have the image in first, but just like what people would say. And then I had the introduction and then it kind of, you know, started to sing, as, as you guys say. And so I just wrote that down on my phone hoping that by the time I arrive at Tindalos, it will not feel shitty, you know, because sometimes you write some some stuff, you put the phone back in your pocket, you reread it five minutes later, and this is, a, this is trash, that, that won't work. And it, it felt kind of good to write it and try to polish it a bit. Roma loved it, actually, but we went through several iterations of that scene, and I fought hard to keep it as long as we made it. Because the poor cinematic team, like they had to animate like a, a dialogue that is probably like two minutes and 40 seconds. I, I remember something like that, but maybe it's a, it's a bit shorter in the end. It's something that for our viewers and listeners, usually video games, they never do because cutscenes are so hard and damn expensive. Like you will do the action stuff. You won't do the, you know, talking stuff. And it's changing, you know, because of big companies, like for instance, the Spider-Man games from uh, Insomniac did, like you have a lot of cutscenes that are not action. 
but more like dialogue or like slice of life stuff. And, and I love that. What you have to realize is that they have more than 10 times our budget. So <laughs> when basically I said, you know, it's a dialogue, it's a verbal just, it's about the high ground, just like Roma said. So he can be the game director, but he's not always right, you know? So everybody was like, yeah, but Thibault is going to be super difficult. It's going to be super boring in terms of what shot we can use and everything. But uh, actually, Arnaud, the lead from the cinematic team, like he has like, I think, a background in, in photography, like uh, actual, you know, movie photography. So he had a lot of ideas, you know, I think as soon as he made sense to him, that moral contest, he had ideas about details and everything. And regarding the Blade Runner aspect, that also, I think, clicked with him about stuff that could be put into that scene indicating that she is indeed a synth or she is not, depending on if you catch those details. I think we end up with something. I have seen the, the, the released version. And first of all, like the two actresses, they nailed it, I think. It's probably better for them. I don't, don't want to assume, but I guess it's not video game dialogue, you know? It's just actual... Mm. It's just story. But it's just story, right. And so I think they nailed it. It feels good to see that scene and it feels good that you guys loved it. And also a lot of people reacted to it. I saw like a Reddit thread, like saying, did Mako Price, is she a bad person? And I think that made my day, you know, like we were like talking about that for hours with Roma. Like what will people think about that character? Did we nail it with the confrontation with Price regarding all that? What will people take away from that? And um, I think people are actually not one side or the other. They, they, are, they were actually exchanging ideas about morality and that sort of stuff. I'm not saying I, I wrote a philosophical essay on, on right and wrong, but it just feels good when it clicks with people and they actually you know like run with it and i I, and they have their little theories about that regarding the blade runner thing i guess that helps as well you know trying to i guess excite you know the imagination the imagination sorry of of people playing but is she or not a a synth i don't know Uh, i think the first version i wrote was clear that she is and I think we had little details that Arno had storyboarded, uh, like she was supposed to, you know, hammer her desk that is actual is stone or like a massive, you know, brutalist thing. And we were supposed to have like a, like a large shot or maybe not like an insert or something very close, but where you could see that the actual, I don't know what's the word in English for that, but basically like the shape of her fist on the thing on the desk. And so it was supposed to indicate like she had strength. We had another iteration, I think, with the gun that she had the gun, but she couldn't shoot. And I guess that would, that came back from, you know, Asimov and rules about robotics, not, you know, robots not being able to shoot humans. But I was like, in aliens lore, I don't think that makes sense because they attack people and they can kill them if they want. So I wasn't sure it worked in that regard, but it was a nice reference to one of the, you know, sci-fi masters and whatever. We had a few details here and there. I think they were all cut to leave uh, the imagination and your theories open. So I don't know. I don't think it will be discussed in 40 years. Who knows? Like Blade Runner is still discussed. And then one day you have Harrison Ford or Ridley saying, it's that. <laughs> it's that version is canon. The rest uh, you can you can forget about. I love those moments where maybe she's not, maybe it's, you know, it depends on what you want to see in that scene. And does she have to be a synth and to be such a machine? You know, that line might be a bit on the nose, but it's just 
I felt like it, we did a good job with, with this one, but it was very much like a team effort. Started with me because the brief was like so, I mean, that was a nightmare, to be honest with you. I thought like, I will never come out of this alive. People will hate me for that scene. But actually people, now that I, I've seen the, the like uh, reviews and deep dive here and there, people love that scene, which is craziest thing to me you know it's surreal that you guys actually love Mako for one and love that scene in particular but I guess it's because maybe we corrected the track she was on and uh, hopefully it makes it makes all sense now whether you think Price is indeed uh, a scene for not what do you guys think <laughs> that was a really interesting mission it definitely had some Blade Runner influence I mean in the in kind of that city part of the planet itself but the city is beautiful even Price's office, like that really reminded me of Neander Wallace's office in 2049. Yeah, with yeah. Water on both sides and everything. But yeah, Mako's character had some interesting complexity. And like you were saying, she was an introvert. And I didn't notice that until you mentioned it. And then looking back, I was like, yeah, she is kind of an introvert. But that's also kind of she has other traits like, you know, she's also quick to, to take a leadership position. You yeah. know, she's so that can Maybe be less common in introverts. I don't know. But she did have some interesting dynamics at play with herself. Like there were some scenes where she would kind of say something that was a bit out of line and a Marine would tell her and she'd be like, oh, you're right. Yeah, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have I shouldn't have said that. So she was a bit introspective as well. That was something I really liked about Mika was that she took responsibility very quickly and very early on. You know, the earlier parts of the game when she first joins up with the Otago and, and the Marines and she kept her role in the Cerberus Protocol secret, I was like, please do not keep this a secret too long. <laughs> and you hit the perfect mark of when she revealed it, took that responsibility early on and it informed a lot of her behavior, or seemed to, in my opinion, uh, informed a lot of her behavior as the narrative progressed there in terms of owning up to what she'd done and making up for what she'd done with this, you know, a lot of fixing, attempting to fix what she'd done, but then also having Harper's mentality of we are Marines, we help people start to push and inform that a little bit more. And Harper, I fucking loved Harper as well. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I very quickly it was endeared to him. And he had a very interesting ability with yeah. the telepathy. And that's something you need to tell us about as well, because that's much like the cult. You know, that's something that was in or some form of it was in very early on in the original series. You know, it was it was more alien initiated than anything else. And you had mm -hmm. a little bit of it in, you know, you mentioned Sea of Sorrows earlier that the game yes. director mentioned to you. You know, it's not telepathy as such in that book. Empathy, right empathy you know like yeah. the, the beta the betazoids in star trek so you know t tell us about that you know how did that come into the game was that another one from the game de developer uh, game director sorry i would assume so i think i don't think they always had mako as the main character i don't think they had harper as well so it must have been you know those two characters are like iteration from earlier concepts i would assume Although I don't know the full, you know, extent of their background as, you know, prototype characters and whatever. But as soon as I heard that, oh, he has, he's an empath and he can interact sort of with the, the, the xenomorph or the, or the hive, I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. I didn't know we could do that, you know, in, in alien canon. And so we started to talk about a Sea of Sorrow and what, how they describe their disability there. 
And I, I think I say ability because that was very clear from Fox that we couldn't say it's a power. You know, it's not a thing like you put your hand and you pet the, the xenomorph and you scratch his head. Definitely not. So it's more like a very thin thing that can actually fade away maybe with time or actually take a massive toll on your body and your mind. So that was quite interesting to write. And I w- it was way more fun to write. Usually it's, it's, I guess it's because I am so much into like military characters and that sort of stuff. It was, you know, it clicked with me faster, but you know, much like Mako, there was like some emotional, I would say, I keep using that sentence, you know, like, emo, like when I talk to my other writers or, or people in the industry of emotional honesty, if that makes sense, is that sometimes I feel like in games in particular, we want the story to have an impact on characters, but we don't show that impact because we don't have time. Because cutscene, they they you know they spend too much money. They're they're too hard to make, and and so it was. I mean, Harper was missing a lot of also of, of cracks and flows. He was, I guess, mysterious. Kept his abilities a secret longer in the first versions. And I thought, well, if Mako reveals what she she has done earlier into the game, surely. It will, I guess, inspire the Harper to do the same thing about his, you know, his abilities, his daughter, and all that jazz. So I think the scene, the Blade Runner scene, let's call it that, is one of the the thing I'm the most proud of. But second to that is on those little lines and moments I added in between the missions, where you could actually see Harper is actually emotionally he's he's going down, you know, like he's actually under so much pressure. And he has to, we have to see that. We have to see that he fears for himself, for his daughter, for his Marines. But something we don't usually see, I think, in those type of characters, military characters and action, you know, type of badasses. Like, I really wanted to see that same sort of sensibility if we can draw another parallel. Well, aliens, I think when Hicks like kind of take Newt and Ripley under his, you know, wing, he has... There is like the like there is a warmth to him, you know. That really, uh-huh. I really wanted to have. I guess that speaks to you, Aaron, in particular, knowing <laughs> your nickname. But uh, I really wanted to to have that sort of stuff because I was afraid the cold uh, one-liner type of sergeant was cool because I like to write that and I like to see those characters. But if if it's just the abilities. Well, I guess they become what we didn't want it to become was just, you know, ah, he has this superpower, he, he has this ability, you know, he, he press on Q or E on his keyboard and now he can control the hive. And so I really wanted to balance that with some emotion, which is hard to do when you, we had the cutscenes, we had motion capture, we had a lot of tools at heart disposal but it's just more difficult to do than when you're shooting a movie i guess and you're with your actors throughout the whole thing but i think uh, jared uh, zeus who's voicing uh, harper he has a lot of that in his voice and he actually did a lot of games before that but very little uh, roles you know like most voice actors do i'm not dissing on that on the contrary i think i was super impressed with the warmth he had I really wanted to lean into that thing. And it's another lesson I learned from Matt. He, he was only there working with me for one month, but he said, before you write those characters, those we, we already chosen a, a voice for, you have to listen to. And I didn't know we had that. And so I listened to his voice and I was like, oh, okay, so he's 
it can actually we can actually lean you know on that emotional side of things and the empathy is i guess very much like the i don't know if we say the empathy uh, the abilities is very much the same thing as the cult it was a great idea that was present throughout a lot of works, I guess. Maybe not a lot, but it was already present. And also it could make a great it would make for a great gameplay mechanic, you know, because you could actually inform the player of what the hive was trying to do, or if it was trying to trick you and that sort of stuff. And I think we wouldn't be able to do that and help the player with just instruments or, you know, like machines and everything. So it had a level of, I guess, it's it's more visceral like that. It's more, it's more interesting as well. It's greedier, if that makes sense, because it's, he's not an actual device, you know, he's an actual an actual man and a soldier as that with the troubled past, uh, which is another thing that, was present in earlier versions, removed, and I added back in when I arrived. The fact that he were uh, he actually served against his own people, like trying to put down put down that uh, uprising and that sort of stuff was for me opportunities to create like a character with a deeper background and you know like emotional background and just your typical cool looking, cool sounding marine. I hope we made that quite okay. I'm not sure, you know, but I'm kind of curious to hear about what you guys think in terms of balance, you know, between Harper's abilities, Mako, her secrets, you know, there was a lot of uh, back and forth on that at the studio and with the publishers. So I'd be curious to hear what you have to, to say about that. I really did like the dynamic between those two characters. And that's why I found found it kind of a shame what ended up happening to to Harper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, why did why did he have to go that far? But I really liked his character. I liked him stepping up to the plate. It's kind of interesting in the beginning that he's a bit reluctant. He's like, wait, no, you have seniority, not me, you know. That was one of the things I really liked about him. And that's one of the things that I find endearing about some of the male leads in Alien, you know, Dallas and mm-hmm. Hicks in particular. They are put in charge of situations they do not fucking want to be put in charge yeah. of. And and Harper was very much the same in this one. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, I, I see a little bit of Hicks in that. I see a little bit of Dallas in that. And it always works for me. I, I identify with that far too much than <laughs> I should, which is why I like Hicks yeah. as well. But I think that was Matt. I think he, he, he we already had that line and just added like what Martinez was saying about like that was the captain orders and everything. Because, you know, people were like, why though? You know, if, if, if it was supposed to be this guy... Why would it not be this guy, you know? And I'm like, well, because he doesn't have the ability. And so we need to keep Harper. I remember like thinking the same thing you you were mentioning, Aaron, because uh, I love that trope in fiction. And I guess maybe it's true to an extent in real life, like the, the best leaders, they don't want that power. They don't want to lead. But so that makes them more interesting. I guess floated, but there there is that honesty I was talking about that I think you have with those characters. And mm-hmm. for me as well, I, I, I really love that. And it just makes those uh, characters more uh, 
interesting and probably they have more potential with that if it's just if they're just leaders that's just that's fine but usually you'll have to uh, have the opposite of a redeeming quality you have to find a flow somewhere and uh, i think we i'm glad we have that line because i guess it set up the tone perfectly that and the way it talks to unsled like uh, it's not we are gonna die here you know like you can take your time and everything i think the first interactions with mako and everything and they're, they're quite cool I've seen some comments like they were they were pissed off that Mako was lying to him. I was kind of intrigued by that because I thought, well, these guys have guns and you <laughs> yeah. maybe you won't say, you know, like, yeah, yeah, just shot your ship. That uh, we call that Tuesday in the well on Tanny. It it totally made sense that she lied to him, but it's like I said, you know, I was glad she didn't hold on to that too long. Yeah. No, nothing is more annoying than in fiction and in stories than when somebody holds on to a secret far too long. And I think, yes, it worked perfectly in terms of timing with this one, which is, again, you know, all part of why I liked her journey throughout this. Yeah, they were fun to write together, like those talks between the missions and everything. I think uh, I, I, I saw a lot of that, like people playing they go through the, those missions. So I, I saw a lot of those interludes I was mentioning about. Uh, they were actually quite fun, you know, like it, it feels like, yeah, I, I saw some stuff like, is this comedy, you know, with with a, an, an, an actual extract of the game? And I was like, you know, maybe it's a bit of comedy in that, which is definitely not intentional, but I guess it, it is, you know, such a weird situation that of course Harper and Mako are a bit like strangers to... I mean, they are actual strangers, but I guess it's normal that they don't act like best buddies from the get-go, you know, let's get some aliens. There's a lot of yin and yang yeah. in terms of their dynamic, which was really fun. I was just going to say, it was also interesting that Harper had this deeply personal connection to the planet that, that they were on, but also his ability was causing him more and more physical ailments. So while he very much wanted to step up to the plate and be a leader and then add in the, the element of his daughter as well, there comes a point where he's just not capable anymore. And his Marines are like, it's okay, go to the med bay. Like mm-hmm. you, you need to take care of yourself. We'll figure this out. And, and that's when Mako kind of steps up in her role a bit more as being involved with the Marines. Yeah. So that was kind of an interesting dynamic there, I thought. Yeah, I like that as well. The fact that he's kind of disabled by the by the actual fact of leading, of commanding those Marines, you know. I thought it was... I mean, we end up ended up killing him anyway, <laughs> which is sad, as you mentioned. But I really thought it was interesting to put him on the side because we usually don't see that. Especially nowadays, you know, like we're like, okay... It's time for female heroes to rise. And so we'll have them in a certain presented in often the same type of way and they skyrocket everything. And it was interesting to see their the dynamic and how they kind of, you know, influence each other. And so I guess without Mako, Harper would have maybe died on the field, you know, like he wouldn't have tried that option. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't work out for him, but at least he tried. And I think that, that was that is something interesting, something new and, and probably fresher. And Mako wouldn't have earned her mistakes without, you know, the help of Jonas. So I think that was an actual nice, uh, it's almost like a, a romantic comedy, you know, like they, they bump into each other and they're changed forever in a totally different and, and nihilistic context. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you ever think of like an in-game, in-universe reason for his, you know, empathy with the aliens? You know, from what I remember of Sea of Sorrows, it was to do with a connection with Ripley or something like that. And in 
the older comics it was it was more alien initiated than anything did you guys ever have we know, have an explanation reason? like that i don't did you guys read every data pad ever that's not a challenge it's just us. i didn't get all of them i think i missed like one on three or four missions. okay yeah maybe some of them didn't make the cut but i think we actually had an explanation and we have maybe a few lines that point in that in that direction but nothing super like factual so I'm not saying you should have caught that, Aaron. Uh, how dare you? But um, I think the idea was that Marlow, or at least one of the Marlows, don't re- I don't remember the timeline quite exactly. There was something about him doing something to Harper in hypersleep, was it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, the idea was that Whalen Utani has unlimited access, I'd say, to human resources. And those are like uh, soldiers in hypersleep, cryosleep. I never know which one is which. <laughs> are, they, are they both correct? It, it's time for me to learn. Yeah, this. I, I think they both are Yeah, okay, cool. Glad I have you on my <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to improve my my aliens game, but yeah. So he had like basically there's no shortage of soldiers that are more or less like you know like private military stuff. They do, they're Marines from the USCM, but uh, I think like in the canon, they basically they can be pointed in the direction the, the way you want. So the idea was that why not make experiments in those long massive journeys? And uh, Harper was one of the unfortunate victims of those experiments and one of the few who actually where they caught caught something you know Malo and his scientists thought oh maybe we have something there you know to explore and i guess that's also why we have this family link of cassandra having a, a link as well like is this like a family genetical trait i don't think we ended up choosing but we really thought about yeah, okay, certain individuals might have a better like link to that technology he was build- building. Maybe we'll get to explore more of that in the future. I hope so. But yeah, basically the idea was that he was victim of experiments, but it was never more than that. I'd say, you know, we didn't think about connection with other works. It was more, I guess, stuff that happened during his deployments and the idea that I found interesting that the way you could use soldiers as, you know, like in, in a very weird People are like sleeping for years and they're like injecting stuff to them. Like that, that felt very sinister and also kind of true to what happened, you know, throughout our history, like soldiers being a kind of pets, you know, like the opportunity of war used to try out the most sinister things you can think about. All the Vietnam stuff, yeah. Yeah. So that was very much leaning into that Cold War type of thing, you know, as well. Like, what if we create the super soldiers that can, I don't know, talk to dolphins and intercept Russian, you know, communications and that sort of stuff? Then it's the xenomorphs for us, but not not dolphins or whatever. But yeah, that sort of ideas. Yeah, that ability I thought was handled really well. It really reminded me of Sea of Sorrows, where it was something like certain individuals could tune into the the hive mind signal or something like that. Like it wasn't taken as far as like the psychic ability in Starship Troopers or something. It was still kind of grounded in the alien universe, which I appreciated. But let's let's talk about that final mission. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. So for the first time since Prometheus, 
we had actual space jockeys as a separate thing, not as the engineers. We were genuinely surprised that 20th Century Studios allowed that. So tell us about the decisions around that story element and the designs you went for, for the jockeys and for the alien titan. So to tell you the truth, we were just as surprised. (laughs) I know we joke about it, but it wasn't as much trying to erase Prometheus as it was to explore, I guess, the original alien movies, you know, power fantasy of imagining what were the space jockeys about, you know, and we really want would want it to to tap into that. And I'm still not sure how we managed to do that, but since full disclosure, I got your question in advance, I was able to find a few clues, trying to, you know, use my own <laughs> empathic abilities, you know, trying to to remember what came into the script and whatever. And I think one uh, the end of the game was as as described as the rest of the game was when I came in. Uh, it wasn't as detailed, you know. We don't have script per se. It's mostly dialogues and that are in a, usually in Excel sheets with different gameplay beats described. But because of that, we kept referencing, referring, sorry, the final level as Xeno City. But there wasn't much more than that for like a long time. So. I don't know if 20th was aware of it. I think they were because we had to report to them, send different missions and design and whatever. But I guess maybe they, they let their guard down at some point. You know, they were like, yeah, okay, Xeno City, whatever. So you'll have Xenomorphs in the city. Yeah, n- nothing new. Right? Until, you know, it became that massive thing that we wanted to explore. Because I think on, on Tidalo's side of things, we really wanted to have that cosmic horror feeling for the end of the game, which is a very tricky, I guess, mission because you're not playing your Marine. So we kind of go back to the story side of things with Mako, but also we give you, I guess, what the big giant Easter egg, quite literally, you know, like for you to kind of compensate it for for your efforts. And and it's something, uh, now that I think about it, is that it's not often seen in video games as well, because usually less than one person of of players, you know, finish games and uh, that sort of stuff. So you you don't want to invest too much into your last level and big moment and whatever. But in that regard, Romain and the team at Tidalos, they are they know to hold their, you know, like their positions. If that, if I can use that, that sentence, like it feels very marine, but they, they were sure that we had to finish on that thing. And that's something I really appreciate is that they, they really thought about, like, this is a franchise we have to honor. And so we have to, to make new things. We, we cannot just play on the archetypes we already saw. To an extent, that's what we we do throughout the campaign. You know, we introduce new stuff, but nothing as big as that. And so I don't I don't know what what it came down to, but I guess what I'm sure of is that they loved twentieth uh, loved the design we presented to them. And to my understanding, that it was the only design we ever offered, so it didn't change much. And so you have to think giant snake xenomorph. And they were like, okay, let's discuss it. And so basically, maybe it was like so big, <laughs> not in terms of size, uh, but in terms of concept, that they they couldn't, you know, discuss it. They, they were just, they couldn't, you know, say no to that. They were, they were just like, okay, these guys are crazy. So they won't understand. They won't take no for an answer. We'll have to discuss it. 
I, I would love to talk to to them about that spe specifically. But I suppose as well, that's another clue for you guys, because I didn't really think about that. To be honest, I, we were, as I said, just as surprised and relieved, frankly. But for the longest time, we thought it, we will never do that. We have to find potentially another ending. And that was super scary to, to do, you know, because the mission was written. Uh, everything made sense in terms of character arcs and everything. The structure was, I guess, pretty much okay, sound. And now there were, you know, discussion about that guy, that Sino Titan. And I suppose maybe with the merger, things will change. It will change, sorry, for, for that franchise in the same way that we have seen certain, like one vision enforced, you know, for, other franchise with uh, I don't know Star Wars or more recently Indiana Jones like you clearly see what Lucasfilm they want to do they want to put forward so some people like it some don't some they find you know bits they like and they make their choices you know depending on the different series or movies I guess Alien will become like that or in I don't know how you feel about it guys but I guess we are on that track right now and so I suppose maybe they wanted to try to move away from Prometheus or Covenant to build something else, acknowledging that this does exist, but what if we go into that direction, you know? And I guess maybe that's why we got a, a, a ticket, <laughs> a rain check for, for that one. I'm not sure really how how we managed to do that. It is one of the, one of life, many mysteries specifically for that production, but maybe we were just at the right time with a project that wasn't big enough to scare them, but it was interesting enough to excite them, if that makes sense. So they were like, oh, maybe we can try things with a video game. Maybe that thing won't be that much of a hit or a risk. But that said, you know, it was definitely one of the biggest validation processes we had during the production. And it started pretty late into production. So that was scary. And I know uh, Richard, for one, who worked as motion capture coordinator, but he's also an artist and he's super into Geiger's work. So he designed that, I think, with Sergey, who is our artistic director and they worked really hard to make that Titan work. And so they had to tweak very little details. Probably the, the creature didn't change that much, but there were a few details that, that got changed. I don't remember quite exactly what, but at one point they said, okay, it is green lit. But I remember that when I was not working at Tindalos, I had Sergey saying, okay, what can you tell me about that Titan? How does that function? How could we justify this and that? And I love working with him because he had a very, just like Romain, he had a, like a, a very a storytelling sensibility. You know, he wants to the design to make sense. And I think it did because it ended up, you know, being uh, green-lighted. So I was, I'm super glad about that. I know at some point our producers were saying we have to think of something else. And I know that 20th had offered alternatives to speed up the process because uh, if you take something that already exists, you don't have to go through the validation it already exists. It's okay to use it. So basically an impress or that sort of stuff, but it felt like not cheating, but like guys, this is a difficult game. People have survived the campaign. They need like a, a, a gift, a good send off. And I think that could be it. And so we created that Titan for that, the city as well. When I was working on the project, I actually went to Gruyere in Switzerland and visited the museum oh, they have there. Nice. 
And oh, yeah. and I saw like he the, one of the first painting they have was actually a city in Geiger style. So it doesn't look like a city at all. I remember taking a picture and sending it to the team, like maybe we could make that the city. I think in the end, it was so difficult to validate every corridor, every asset we have in the, in that level, uh, that it was definitely not worth it. I think every producers with the right mind would have said no. But at Tindalos, we do things differently, <laughs> I guess. I'm so glad you did. Thank yeah, you. Uh, you suffered through it, sorry, should I say, because that mission was so satisfying, especially from a visual point of view. You saying you'd, you'd gone to the museum and everything, that background, all, all the city being shown off it was like yes this is this is giga and in a lot of ways and i'm curious to know if it came up especially from um how are you pronouncing the developed director's name roman or roman if you put it like in english but... I'm, I'm curious to know if he ever really talked about destroying angels the comic because a lot of it is like walking through some of the panels in that yeah it was very very giga sort of um necropolis i wouldn't be surprised <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised because he he has absorbed so many things from those comics we worked so like in in so intensely on that mission it felt like uh because i wrote in chronological order as well it was pretty late into production like i think the game was already announced and and we already had like maybe the first maybe the first two no maybe the only the first trailer but we were like this game will come out in like five or four months and we didn't validate this thing. That's scary. You know, that's actual, actual, like that was an actual risk. It's, it's a real testimony. I don't think that's the idiom, but anyway, like it goes to show like how strong, like the, the, his vision was, uh, and how strong our vision was because I, I never felt like, you know, he wanted to recreate this panel. So I guess now we have to make it. But uh, it, it was very much like, yeah, this is sick. This is insane. I think I think I heard it's like the first original Xenomorph since Covenant. I mean, you guys will be able to correct me, but I think I heard that from people. Maybe on a screen, maybe maybe comics did something cool in in between. But yeah, I think we had well, we had the Alpha and those weird fucking centipede things from Marvel. Yeah, yeah. I didn't check that. Yes, okay. And and it's interesting as well as being what the first jockey alien we've had for a long time yeah. since that comic infestation. I think, which no infestation had. Oh, one. you're right. Okay, but that comic Apocalypse: The Destroying Angels is uh, a favorite of mine as well as Aaron's. So I definitely recommend checking that out because there are I'll a number of parallels out. beyond just the biomechanical city. You know, even the motivations of like kind of the main antagonist or a little bit of a parallel there he's like how can we coexist with the alien because eventually the alien will just be everywhere so we need to find a way that we can live among them mm -hmm. and the cult kind of had a more sinister take of of that but it was um yeah there, it's some interesting comparisons so i definitely recommend checking that out cool but as as a fan that has been a fan for a long time it was really cool to see something that felt more like older expanded universe like those early days when we had played avp2 <laughs> they had these end levels where you would explore the space jockey uh facility they would call it like the pilot race in that game and it really just brought me back there as a fan and i i like miss that that feeling you know the prequels they've been divisive among fans i mean some fans love them some fans have complicated feelings about them like myself so to see something that was that felt more in line with the original films in terms of that more lovecraftian depiction yeah. you know 
it was really cool to to see that again. I guess we're we're not called Team Dallas for nothing, and <laughs> obviously the the original team uh, that Romain, I mean, he and his partner is there. They are massive fans of that sort of horror and you know existential dread, and we really wanted to. I mean. I didn't read that comic and I guess maybe for the better because I didn't want it to do the exact same thing. I mean, if I did by mistake, I guess I can't stay. It's just a mistake. You know, I didn't do it, you know, on purpose. But when he started to talk about that Xenocity and cause we wanted to strike, uh, you know, for that level, it made sense to me because of the common uh, references we had regarding maybe Lovecraftian horror or maybe, you know, that original scene with the space jockey. And so I guess you have to imagine that, I guess he lived with that ID for entire years and it is now not an ID, but more like a feeling. So I'm glad that we were able to to give that feeling to you guys and uh, actually to put you back, you know, a few few years from that. Because it's just it's just such a powerful thing, you know. And I myself, I have complicated feelings with Prometheus and Covenant, but it, it was just always so interesting to see a vision, you know, on that universe. And to go back to the original or the first question about how did I discover Alien, I was when I started watching those movies, I thought it was an actual anthology. So I thought those were the rules, you know, like you have to do your your take on a movie and who cares if it cancel, you know, the thing that came before or it changes. It's just, it's, it's how beautiful it is, you know? So I guess I can understand why people are kind of sad. It didn't came out as, as good as they wanted it to be, those two movies. But it's in a sense, like I always felt of them as one iteration, you know, on, on that specific concept. And our example with Dark Descent shows that I guess nowadays it is possible to have maybe multiple versions on the same ID. I guess it doesn't have to be, you know, contradictory. Maybe it can coexist, but I feel like it was a privilege to 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 work on 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 such a. It feels tiny at the scale of the game and everything that I had to work on because it's mostly artists that made that thing work. I had nothing to do with it, but it just feels good to maybe if one day I see like a figure of that thing, I'll I'll say, yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember this guy. I'd love to see that. And I love to, to, I mean, it's just like, I have to pinch myself when I started, you know, I didn't really touch on that, but it became a job. Like I really wanted to be the best thing every day, you know, in terms of writing, in terms of giving ideas, but I really never thought about how we people will react to that. I just thought about how was I reacting to stuff. And when they said, you know, we will end this game in the same city. And I was like, tell me more. I need to, to know more. What what does it look like and everything? And so when they invited me kind of in, in the project, you know, to, to exchange ideas on that, I was just, it's just such a massive privilege. And sometimes I, I realize it when I hear you guys, when I see people talking about that on, on the internet and all social media i'm just like hey it's true we did that you know um, i guess i talk a lot about the validation process but i should talk way more about how people validated that for us you know receiving that zeno titan as well as they received it i thought it was cool that it went in a very different design direction 
you know, I think Adam, you'd pointed this out as well. It reminded me of some takes on the jockeys being these creatures without legs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think it's anything we'd ever seen in any official sort of um, medium. But when when the Titan rocked out with the, with a the massive tail, I was like, yep, I know what I'm <laughs> doing here. And this is interesting. So yeah, that was that was really cool. I loved them. Mandibles, is that the word also in English? Yes. Like that. I loved them. Just so frightening. <laughs> so one of the things um I was intrigued about from the very sort of start of the game was the Cerberus protocol. So I'm I'm a little unclear on the specifics here. This might have been logs I missed, so you're gonna have to clarify this for me again. Because very early on I was thinking the company's gotta know there's aliens on Lethe to put this in place. So, you know, the the logs in the final mission sort of mentioned that they'd known about the Xeno City, the Jockey City for some time. So was Cerberus something that was put into place after the discovery of the city and the egg? Yeah. It was containment protocol with the knowledge of the aliens already being there. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, okay. but Cerberus was one of the, if we want to elaborate on that, I don't want to step on your, <laughs> on your toes, guys. But yeah, uh, basically, it was one of the tough things we had to work on because it, it, it one of the assignments, you know, like a feedback, like this isn't clear. So I'm not surprised that it feels still a bit blurry. To be fair, we wanted to leave room for interpretation and stuff in the data pads because I think that's the beauty of video games. Like when you have stuff like that, you can always put a few data pads and all explaining the stuff, you know. But we try to be careful with that and not to, you know, hammer your head with the exposition put in different places. But I learned a hard lesson working on servers in particular is you have to map out everything uh, because if you don't know about your plan, I guess it will not work out for your players as well. At first, when they ask about, can you make that clearer? I was like, nah, it's fine. It's your typical, you know, nuke satellite, doomsday clock, who cares? And then I realized, yeah, it's hard to people to understand the plans of the way you, so we have to understand why they put that in place. And so if you corroborate the different data pads together, I think what you discover is that, to put it simply, there were families trying to go back to Conrad and that sort of, you know, uh, literature. Families of pioneers go, going on Liffy, trying to find Trimonite. And yeah, so they wanted to find that and actually came across that city, you know, probably um, dive deeper than, than they should have. And I think the different data pads mentioned different families. And one of them were like, okay, let's cash out. Let's call the Wii U. They'll take care of everything. I don't want anything to do with that. And another, you know, like they betrayed themselves, which is kind of work out for the Wii U because they bought the whole thing back and became interested in what they had found, but didn't understand the full extent, I guess, of their discoveries. So it took years for them to understand what they found, and Marlow helped them in that regard. But officially, the Cerberus was put together, I think, because of the uprising we mentioned in the background of Leafy. They were like, oh, we cannot have, you know, people, you know, flying around with spaceships and doing nothing. So we'll put those satellites nothing to worry about and that's the official version and uh, in fact the idea is that they can nuke you know everything from orbit and and wait if things don't work out the way they want to and what i really wanted to do is to show that they don't operate at human level you know they're not saying oh if i don't do this or that they can wait you know they have money they have the corporation they can actually bought you back you know take a little bit of yourself you know for years and so that was that but on 
around the world and almost galactic scale, you know, like, oh, well, if it doesn't work out, the city is safe, it's underground, we nuke everything, clean state, we come back in a few years. Nobody will know about its frontier world, will say that a bad storm happened or whatever, you know. So the idea was to protect not from the people on the planet, but probably people who might be interested in what is on the planet. Like, I don't know, the union of progressive people, competitors. I mean, everybody you can imagine. That. And potentially now they have an opportunity to erase every proof and nuke them from orbit as it is the only way to be sure, right? So that was basically the what went through my mind when I started to uh, write or iron out the Cerberus protocol. But the funny thing is that I had to actually open like a very old document of mine when I started working. So thank you for allowing me to revisit those memories with different ideas that end up being completely, you know, different in the release version. But then it's always fun to see how, you know, the different steps we, we took. That's interesting about the Cerberus protocol that, that it would be a way to stop other entities from getting their hands on the alien if the alien had become too widespread on the planet. Like I hadn't thought of that, but it, make, it makes a lot of sense given that, you know, Whaling Yutani wants the alien all for themselves. So if yeah. it had gotten to this point where it was just everywhere, that they would just eliminate that possibility. Cool. I'm glad you dig it. Another character that we haven't really mentioned yet was Major Theo Stern, who when um, Harper kind of goes out of commission, he joins up with Mm -hmm. Mako's character. And he also has a similar dynamic to Harper of having to fight who were your people before. So it was kind of interesting to see see them join together. I mean, it was mainly for the last bit of the game, but I still feel like he was a solid secondary character. And, you know, if there ever was a sequel or something, we'd probably see, see more of him. I think character-wise, the game did a very good job of working everybody. You know, that last mission when Martinez and Stern, you know, joined Mako. Oh, wait, we wouldn't see more of him because he was... Yeah, <laughs> I didn't want I to make you extra that. sad, and then after opera, I was like... Wait, he died too. Yes, okay. Never mind. Oh, yeah. To to be fair, when that cutscene started and it was just those three, I was a little bit pissed off because I was like, you know what? My guys have just gone through all this fucking ass <laughs> to get this, this landing site sorted and I don't get to go down there. But it was super satisfying to actually from a you know a narrative an investment point of view to see them all three show up together and go down there in support of again uh, Harper you know in support of another character every everything just came together really well in terms of cast and character you know the actors were brilliant the performance was brilliant and it was just a satisfying collection of characters and and the way the narrative just sort of wrapped up around there they just yeah it just worked really well i really i found it really satisfying from that point of view cool it was a difficult sell you know to say that you will have to imagine your marines fighting all the way up there and you're actually stuck with this those named characters that we have i love stern i, I was actually sad that we had to let him go i mean opera i think it was always kind of planned that we we had to to actually you know bid him farewell but it's just like the the character of of Stern of uh, you know and elaborating on that theme of nobody is actually quite in the archetype that you would expect. So when you see a uh, well a new tenure employee, it, it's a white color type of executive, you know, like she's an introvert, and you have like this surgeon that is super badass, but he has like weird past. He's holding stuff on uh, you know for himself. 
And then you see the corporate soldier, like private military type of guy. And he's actually quite smooth and I guess kind of honest, you know, like he's like, fuck them, you know, like I cannot take this shit anymore. And it was so fun to write. I think it was one of the characters I love to write the most. He has this thing when he meet up with the, the Marines, right? And Harper has to talk to, to him. And that was the most difficult scene to do because we had no cutscenes. And I was like, I really want this character to be interesting. And I was super sad that we had to let him go because I thought like we didn't see as much of him as I wanted. But I have ideas, you know, maybe, you know, maybe he could come back or maybe we could do, I don't know, like a, a prequel or some of some sorts with him. Because I think it would be interesting to be on their side, you know, on the well on Utani's side and diving into that uh, also paramilitary, you know, kind of experience that I think the franchise already, already has like, you know, and, and kind of has since Aliens. And I thought like it would be interesting to be in the boots of mercenaries and have a squad of them leading a squad of them. So yeah, we we had stuff like stuff like that planned, but it didn't really work out regarding time was the, of the essence, and we had a more urgent matter to take take into account. But uh, yeah, I love him, I, I, and I'm glad that you that you like him. Hopefully, we'll see more of him one way or the other. <laughs> I've I've been in the midst of packing and it's been like a week since I've completed that game. So I can't, I can't believe like, oh yeah, he did die. That's right. But it's, I mean, that Titan I alien can't. took I them can't. out. <laughs> that Titan alien took them out so quickly. It was like in the blink of an eye. Yeah. But that was also a collective decision. Like at some point they, they were, we were thinking, well, they all have to die basically. Right. Because it was, I think at first we wanted opportunities for the player to save them. And then I thought, it would be weird if we ever make a sequel and like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. we have to take that into account and we're not Bioware and we're not mass affecting that thing. It would have been interesting to write, you know, diff- from different perspectives. Did you save that guy or not? But it was, I guess, not a challenge on, on the play that it, we didn't want to have. And then we thought, how, what would be the most interesting way to kill them? And basically we're like, in a snap, you know, like if we want to, I mean, what we want to sell at that point is the new Xeno. So it has to shred them to pieces, you know. Stern, I think we kept it very often open. So we, like he's pushed, I, I, I remember, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so maybe he's still alive somewhere. So maybe, <laughs> you know, it's it's my head cannon. you know, he's a, he's a tough guy. He survived. Uh, but Martinez definitely uh, was a, a snack for that Titan. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I guess Cassandra, maybe we'd learn more about her. But it's interesting what you said about seeing the mercenary perspective, because you said that and I was like, oh, that would be such a cool DLC idea. Like you play yeah. as the Wailing Yutani mercenaries and you see their base and everything. That was actually uh, that was actually my idea. I actually thought about that and talk about it with Romain, but I don't know if we we will end up doing it. But I think he was just like you digging digging the idea. Were there any other story elements that were dropped from the game that you really wish would have made it into the final release? So it might sound a bit weird after what I just said, but uh, in terms of story elements per se, I think no, we did everything we wanted to do except for that like stern thing, for instance. But we worked on uh, marketing elements and other stuff that didn't see the light of day, unfortunately. So I, for instance, at some point, Romain asked if I could uh, write a script for like a the reveal trailer. And I thought that was like uh, coming from a marketing background. 
because that's what I studied. I was blown away by the opportunity because I think a good trailer is almost like a you know work of art unto itself. You know, you could actually make something that is even sometimes even better than the final product. And so we discussed about that, about what we could do for that reveal trailer. Sadly, it was, I guess, too expensive and the deadline was too short. But the idea was it was basically a, a mix of, of shots, of cool shots, trying to kind of sell the idea that it, this wasn't an FPS. And I think, sadly, we didn't manage to do that during marketing because a lot of people were thinking it's, it's another shooter, you know, or it's a twin stick shooter, whatever. And so basically we had vehicles, we had like massive environments that you have in the game and nothing, you know, misleading or whatever. And you had a voiceover of Marlo giving a speech to his followers and we were finishing, you know, with like almost like an army shot or, you know, a lair shot of him and his goons and, and you like have the reveal, the weird enemies. And that was so fun to imagine. Even even now, I still have it in my in my mind, and I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. We didn't manage to do that, but for the little anecdote, it's like there is, I think there is a datapad with that speech in the game. I actually just copy pasted. This is my confession today, but I copy pasted the, the the script, <laughs> and 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 the speech is actually in the game in in another form. But uh, it's it's a speech that he sent to to his school. So yeah, there, there was stuff like that that we really wanted to explore, like have a very also like a very different kind of promotion for a very different kind of alien game, and I was very near and dear to my heart because of my marketing background. And also, I know 20th was interested at some point making tie-ins, so like maybe comics, I suppose, Marvel comics. As a comic book fan, and I'm still trying to work on my own, on my own stuff in that regard, but I would have loved to write <laughs> that sort of stuff. And I remember pitching like three or four stories. So I think there was a Marlo story, the Darinaeuras story, also pitches for Stern and Harper. I don't know what happened to those. They never mentioned like, okay, we're going to do this or that. But at some point they had like a real curiosity for the project and asked if we could find, you know, little things that were in the game, but that would be a great way to expand on its lore and everything. I would have loved to, I don't know if someone ever actually did that, you know, like you're actually the writer of the game. But you also write on the tie-in, you know. I would have loved to write with an, on another person with something, you know. But that would that would be great. I think they did it with the Star Wars games, but it's not the writers for the games. It's actually different writers. I mean, of course, you you have to be professional about it. It's a very different job. But it, it would have been lovely to to work with the comic book, you know, artists and try to find the best way to expand on on Dark Descent. From our perspective as well, like there there have been. Some video game tie-ins for us, like Fireteam had a prequel, but there's always, you know, because of the nature, the chaotic nature of your experience, you know, writing the game and stuff like that, there's an obvious disconnect yeah, between the two that make it not as satisfying from, yeah. you know, from our experience. So actually having, you know, somebody who was the writing the game, you know, actually being able to do a tie-in would have made for a more cohesive experience that probably would have been more satisfying to us. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's my experience as well. I, I, I used to uh, spend euros on those tie-ins and everything I could read about. And it always felt like kind of weird and 
I don't understand why they don't do that because it's usually, I think, something that could be sold in a few meetings. And also, I guess it would feel great. You know, I have a massive respect for those IPs and for the ideas of expanding universes. And But it feels like we want to make them because we have to make them, but we don't really know how to make them anymore. It's just like there is this very, oh, yeah, we have to do... Uh, you know, tying thing. So in a way, maybe it's good that it didn't see the light of day, but but I would have loved and I would have petitioned Tindal Ostai to to be involved in in that regard. And it would have been cool. Like I think really that there is more there are more stories to tell on Nifi and what happened there. I guess in, in comic book form that would have been great. That leads us on to the next question as well. Because while the game has a very satisfying close, you know, with the rescue of Cassandra, it leaves a lot of threads in regards to her importance, in regards to the world of, of Lethe, because you built... The game had such fantastic world building. You know, it made a giant world and lots of characters and lots of stuff. And yeah, again, Cassandra's sort of importance, the threads of her importance are left very open at the end of it. So something a lot of people asked us to ask you ask you was the possibility of you know of more content had the topic of a sequel or a future dlc you know had that been talked about at tindalos we did talk about it like uh, among ourselves like at tindalos so because it's a very tricky territory we enter here also i tried my best but long story short we we have ideas for more because adam gave the id i was able to jump on that thing about the tlc with the corporate you know like uh, the actual militia from the way you so that was one of the things that i mentioned to him i actually talked about like a I guess an informal pitch uh, for a sequel and he and his brother Tristan, who's uh, also one of the game designer on the game, they loved it. And I thought like we have a real opportunity to kind of create again, something different if we start from there. So I won't spoil the surprise if in a reality or the other, you know, it, it ended up happening, that would be great. But 20th was at least to the extent of my knowledge, was never in the loop. So that was just us dreaming. I know also Roma had a great idea on, I guess, improve, not improve, but expand upon the gameplay to have like a, a, a DLC with a slight different take on, on what we could do with that. And so we, we actually found that now that we have our different assets and a method of you know building those, those levels, it would be great to try to use different genres, uh, more or less characters, you know, like in your squad, that sort of stuff. So I think the game design matrix that the guys created is is very powerful, and but also very flexible. We could imagine very different things. Sadly, I mean, my understanding is that nothing has been discussed officially yet. Before the games, I know that, before the game release, sorry, uh, I know that there were no plans for it for more simply because uh, they are super protective of the IP and there are plenty alien works in the in the making and planned for you guys already. So I understand why they do it. And, you know, on our side, we're just already so happy to, to have done that. If it has to stop there, it will stop there and we'll be very proud of what we do. But uh, it's sure that we have a special position in regard of the genre we represent, like strategy, game, you know, like, they probably have great games planned for sure. I don't think many of them will be strategy games. So hopefully maybe we, we found our little niche that we can, you know, explore. But uh, I guess your 
best bets is probably to campaign for us now because uh, if you love the game and, and, and you say it on, I don't know, social media, Steam, whatever, we will probably help our chances. Maybe it won't happen, you know, right now because I get, as I mentioned, I, there is plenty of things planned for Alien. And I think it's a, for you guys, it must be very, very good because I remember being a journalist at the time when Star Wars came back. And I think it's super exciting to see, oh, and then we have a new movie, a new series, new games. If if there was much news and much marketing, yes. Yeah, yeah. For now, it's very, very shy, right? There's a lot coming, though. And and Prey was really good as well, so. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what what's come? You know, we might I might sort of grumble a little bit about the fact that, you know, I didn't really get much press or marketing sort of communication with this game, and mm-hmm. there might not have been much press around Prey or what have you, but the end results have been fucking good. Yeah. As long as it's in that sense, I think that's fine because yeah. sometimes you have massive promotion and it's a letdown, you know? Yeah, we'll see. Uh, so far, I guess so good. I, I keep my hopes up because it would be, frankly, sad if we not one way or another try together with 20th to find a way to make that game even bigger with, a, I don't know, an extension or, or something else. So the sequel would be great because I, I'm very excited by, by the ideas we discussed together at Tindalos. But it's always like that, you know, you're like, oh, you're writing and it's like so, you know, it's, it's, it's a joy. It's also a job. And then it takes a toll on your creativity and you're like, okay, now we can actually breathe, the thing is done. And suddenly you, you start to miss, you know, like the, the Marines and uh, that universe. So I would, on my side of things, I would sign for, for it in an instant, especially since I can be there from the beginning to the end because I wasn't the first time. So maybe that's why I'm so enthusiastic about it. You know, others are like grizzled veteran. They have PTSD from the production. They're they're trapped in that room of the Otago. They don't want to. They don't want to leave. But me, I'll be down for another mission for sure. So that's actually everything. We're all tapped out. But before we let you exfil back to the Otago, is there anything else you'd like to say? Any anecdote or thought that we just haven't given you the opportunity to express with our questions? Actually, as you may have noticed, the game is uh, dedicated to the memory of Lucille, uh, our friend and, and colleague. Uh, she suffered from mental health problems, sadly. Uh, I did too. Uh, I still do to an extent. And so I promised myself that every time I, I could say something about it, I would say something about it. Because if you suffer from the same things or perhaps depression or anxiety or even, you know, suicidal thoughts, sorry, bad English, but... Please reach out. That's the that's what you have to remember, like whether you you are suffering from one or, or the or the other. Uh, I remember a time where communities such like yours guys uh, was like and, and the passion you entertain for Foden and for those big universes that really helped me out when I needed. So I would love fan over the world of of Alien and other stuff to to continue to offer that sort of support that I was lucky to have. And so, yeah, basically mental health is important. That's what I wanted to say. Uh, and hopefully with the help of, you know, massive communities of fans will, will help, help a lot of people around the world. Yeah, Completely definitely. agree. I mean, it's not something I, I really talk about on the show, but, you know, it's, it's something I also struggle with. And it's a huge help to come on and do these things like this as well. You know, it might, it might be a little bit of a struggle after the fact with the polish and everything, but, you know, just to come on and nerd out with folk is a way to 
kind of get through some of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely definitely relate to that, and that's why I kind of wanted to to end on that note. It's a it's a, uh-huh. it's, a, it's a bit of a weird thing to end on the podcast, but uh, it's it's always good to hear that uh, you know people don't have usually an opportunity to talk about that. So I'm glad that we have it. And so if people watching us have it as well, just reach out and I'll be happy to maybe talk to you on Twitter or everywhere else to find a bit of support and help you out through the day and whatever, you know, sadly, sometimes uh, make it darker. Uh, so hopefully the game and everything we mentioned together, thank you guys again, help out. And thank you very much for inviting me for this opportunity to defend our Build game, as I said, but it's a massive game. I have to say it right now. I can say it with you guys. You, you, you'll forgive me. It's bigger than a little game. But if if folks want to find you, you mentioned you're on Twitter, or yes, if Twitter or still exists by the time you know, <laughs> but the way Threads is going, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's it's uh, if you find uh, if you type my name, you'll find me. But otherwise, the handle is Republic and just like Republic, but not I C at the end. It's free, free K. Because I was very young when I chose that name, and it, it got kind of kind of stuck with me, and it has a nice ring to it. Nobody has it, so it's fine. I, I'll keep it for a while at least. And uh, that'll be in the post that goes along with the podcast. It'll be in the video description as well cool. uh, for folk who are too lazy to type that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's not laziness. It's called um, good journalism. That's that's what it is. Exactly. Oh, but thank you. Um, you know, very much appreciate you joining us, and uh, we'll we'll sort out something extra for folk as yeah. well with you. Excited to do that. Thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, no worries. And thank you. All right. Well, we hope you all enjoyed our discussion with Thibaut Claudel. Yeah, it very much was a discussion rather than an interview as such, wasn't it? Yeah, I thought it was just, again, really fun to... It was great talking to him. Out with yeah. him. Yeah, just because that game played around with, with the lore in such interesting ways. So I'm very much looking forward to another playthrough on that. As always, we appreciate you checking us out. And if you enjoy our podcast, it really does help us out to leave any comments or or reviews and feedback on the various platforms you use. Uh-huh. By the time we this goes up, we'll probably have also launched our Patreon. So if you'd like to, to help support us in other ways as well, please check that out for your consideration. And we'll also be having Tebow back for a part two. Obviously, because this was a two hour long thing, there was extra questions on there from the community that we didn't get a chance to ask. So we're going to be sorting out um, another discussion with Tebow, whether it's uh, on the live stream, whether we do another uh, episode. We haven't, we couldn't quite decide what we were doing, but we're going to be having him back on to for fans to have a chance to put their questions to Tebow directly. Yep, and very much looking forward to that. And hopefully we get more content for Dark Descent announced sometime soon. So maybe he'll have a bit more to talk about if that story continues. You can always find us on our website as well, avpgalaxy.net. And we are on all the major socials, Facebook, Instagram, uh, the new threads and X as it's called now, um, which is very ridiculous still. It's weird even to say that. But yeah, so again, thank you for checking us out. Until next time, this has been Adam Zeller and Aaron Percival signing off.